Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Go. So it's not like Wayne's World where you say the two and the one silently. No. <laughs> Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to episode 201 of the podcast that explores our place in time. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and this is one of these extra juicy and delicious episodes of the show where I really ratcheted up with our guests and provide you one of these singularity is near kind of everything is connected to everything, self-organized criticality right at the edge of chaos conversations, deeply embedded in Chapel Perilous where suddenly the invisible architecture of our cosmos starts to make itself apparent through the glass bead game of conversation. And I am delighted that I get to share it with you. Our guests this week are KMO, one of the most seasoned and well-researched and experienced podcasters that I know, somebody whose show The Sea Realm was running all the way back in 2006. I found him through Eric Davis, who I think most of you know, and I've had on the show a number of times already. And also Kevin Wolmet, who is a close friend of mine here in Santa Fe, a just incredible human being. Uh, he's probably the strongest single supporter of music that I'm aware of, you know, as far as local scenes are concerned and, and supporting people's music online and helping get the word out. He's been instrumental to my family and I in getting ourselves situated here all the way back to when I visited Santa Fe in 2018 to participate in the Santa Fe Institute's Interplanetary Festival and uh, recorded conversations on that trip. Uh, John David Ebert and Michael Aaron Kamins and Ikkyu Sojun about hypermodernity, a two-part episode 104 and 105. I highly recommend going back to that, which is really the last time possibly I had a conversation just this incredibly ambitious on the show but first i want to announce a couple things one is that i have left the santa fe institute the other podcast that i have been hosting for them for the last three and a half years complexity podcast which is substantially more popular than future fossils due to its institutional affiliation is coming to a close i'm recording one more episode with sfi president david krakauer next week in which I'm going to be talking about my upcoming book project. Uh, and that episode actually is uh, conjoined with the big announcement that I have for members of the Future Fossils listening audience and, and uh, paid supporters, which is, of course, the Jurassic Park Book Club that starts on April 29th. We're going to host the first of two video calls where I'm going to dive deep into the science and philosophy of Michael Crichton's most popular work of fiction and its impact on culture and society over the 33 years since its publication. And then I'm going to start picking up as many of the podcasts that I had scheduled for Complexity and had to cancel upon my departure from SFI and basically fuse the two shows. And I think a lot of you saw this coming. Future Fossils is going to level up and become a much more scientific podcast 
as I prepare and research the book that I'm writing about Jurassic Park and its legacy and the relationship it has to ILM and SFI and the Institute of Ecotechnics and all of these other visionary projects that sprouted in the 80s and 90s, the transition from the analog to the digital, the collapse of the boundaries between the real and the virtual, the human and the non-human worlds. It's going to be a very, very ambitious book and a very, very ambitious book club. And I hope that you will get in there because obviously now I am out in the rain as an independent producer and very much need and benefit from and am deeply grateful for your support for this work in order to make things happen and in order to keep my family fed, keep the lights on here with Future Fossils. So with that, I want to thank all of the new supporters of the show that have crawled out of the woodwork over the last few weeks, including Brave Sir Oingo, Brian the Barchaeologist, Philip Rice, Gerald Billack, Jamie Curcio, Jeff Hansen, who bought my music, Kwame, Mary Costello, BR Squared, Nastia Teaches, Community Healthcom, uh, Ed Mulder, Cody Koyak bought my music, Simon Hyduke, amazing visionary artist I recommend you check out, Caleb Peters. Yeah, all of you, I just, wow, thank you so much. It's going to be a complete melee in this book club. I'm super excited to meet you all. I will send out details about the call details for the 29th uh, sometime in the next few days via Substack and Patreon. The amount of support that I've received through this transition has been incredible and it's empowering me to do wonderful things for you such as the recently released secret videos of the live sets I performed with comedian Shane Moss supporting him, opening for him here in Santa Fe, his two sold-out shows at the Jean Cocteau Cinema, where I did cyber guitar performances. And if you're a subscriber, you can watch me goofing off with my pedal board. Uh, There's a ton of material. I'm going to continue to do that. I've got a lot of really exciting concerts coming up in the next few months that we're going to get large group and also solo performance recordings from, and I'm going to make those available in a much more resplendent way to supporters, as well as the soundtrack to Mark Nelson of the Institute of Ecotechnics, his UC San Diego Art Museum exhibit, a retrospective looking at Biosphere 2. I'm doing the music for that, and that's dropping. Uh, the, uh, the opening of that event is April 27th. There's going to be a, a live Zoom event for that, and then I'm going to push the music out as well for that so yeah thank you all i really really appreciate you listening to the show i am excited to share this episode with you kmo is just a trove 
of insight and experience. I mean, he's like a perfect entry into the digital history museum that this show was predicated upon. So with that, and also, of course, Kevin Wilmot is just magnificent. And for the record, stick around at the end of the conversation, we have some additional pieces about AI, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. And uh, yeah, thank you. Here we go. All right, cool. Well, we just had a lovely hour of discussion for the new KMO podcast. And now I'm here with KMO, who is the most inveterate podcaster I know. And I know a lot of them. Early and I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> inveterate. Okay. Yes. Answer to both. Go ahead. I mean, you're not yet legless and panhandling, so I prefer to think of it in, term, in terms of August <laughs> estimation. And am I allowed to say Kevin Wilmot because I've had you as a host? That's on, true. Yeah, my last name has appeared on your show. It hasn't appeared on Camos yet, but I don't really care. Okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, Kevin Arthur Wilmot, who is one of the most solid and upstanding and widely read and just generous people i think i know here in santa fe or maybe anywhere with excellent taste in podcasts yes <laughs> and whose delicious mead i am sampling right now as probably the first episode of future fossils where i've had a, a an alcoholic beverage in my hand so, <laughs> well i mean it's i haven't deprived myself of fun and i think if you're still listening to the show after all these years you probably inferred that but at any rate Welcome on board. Thank and you. <laughs> Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So before we started rolling, okay, so the whole conversation that we just had for you, your show, Camo, was very much about my thoughts on the social epistemology crisis and on science fiction and deep fakes and all of these kinds of weird ontology and these kinds of things. But in between calls, we were just talking about how much you detest the first two seasons of Star Trek Picard and of Discovery. And as somebody, I didn't bother with doing this. I didn't send you this before we spoke, but I actually did write an essay in defense of those shows. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I am not attached to my opinion on this, but, and I actually do want to at some point double back and hear storytelling because when we had lunch and you had a bunch of personal life stuff that was really interesting and juicy and I think worthy of discussion, but simply because it's hot on the rail right now, I want to hear you talk about Star Trek. And both of you, actually, I know are very big fans of this franchise. I think fans are often the ones from whom a critique is most 
important and deserved. And so I welcome your unhinged rants. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, first I'll start off by quoting Kevin's brother, the linguist, who says, that which brings us closer to Star Trek is progress. But I'd have to say that which brings us closer to Gene Roddenberry and Rick Berman era Star Trek is progress. That which brings us closer to Kurtzman. What's his first name? Alex. Um, Alex Kurtzman, Star Trek. Well, that's not even the future. I mean, that's just, that's our drama right now with inconsistent Star Trek drag draped over it. I liked the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek. I think it was from 2009 with Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto and Carl Urban and Zoe Saldana. I liked the casting. I liked the energy. It was fun. I can still put that movie on and enjoy it. But each one after that just seemed to double down on the dumb and just hold at arm's length any of the philosophical stuff that was just amazing from Star Trek The Next Generation or any of the long-term character building, which was like from Deep Space Nine. And before Seven of Nine showed up on, on Voyager, you really had to be a dedicated Star Trek fan to put up with early seasons of Voyager. But I did, because I am. But then once she came on board, and it was hilarious, they brought her on board. I remember seeing Jerry Ryan in her cat suit on the cover of a magazine and just rolling my eyes and thinking, oh my gosh, this show is in such deep trouble. They're sinking to this level to try to save it. But she was brilliant. She was brilliant in that show. And she and Robert Picardo as the doctor. I mean, it basically became the Seven of Nine and the Doctor show co-starring the rest of the cast of Voyager. And it was so great. I love to hear them singing together and just all the dynamics of... I'm human, but I was, I basically came up in a cybernetic collective and that's much more comfortable to me. And uh, I don't really have the option of going back to it. So I got to make the best of where I am, but I feel really superior to all of you. Is <laughs> <laughs> such, it was such a charming dynamic. I absolutely loved it. Yes. And then I think a show that is hated even by Star Trek fans, Enterprise, loved Enterprise. And yes, the first Three seasons out of four were pretty rough. Actually, the first two were pretty rough. The third season was that Zindi arc in the uh, the Expanse. That was pretty good. And then season four was just astounding. It's like they really found their voice. And then what's his name at CBS Paramount? He's gone now. He got me too'd. What's his name? Les Moonves <laughs> said, no, I don't like Star Trek. He couldn't, he didn't know the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek. That was his level of engagement. And he's like, nah. Oh, you mean like J.J. Abrams? What's that? You mean J.J. Abrams? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think J.J. is, I like some of J.J. Abrams' early films. I really like Super 8. He's clearly, his early films were clearly an homage to like 80s Spielberg stuff. And Spielberg gets the emotional beats right. And J.J. Abrams was mimicking that. And his early stuff really works. It's just when he starts adapting properties that I really love. And he's coming at it from a marketing standpoint first and a, hey, we're just going to do the lost mystery box thing. We're going to set up a bunch of questions to which we don't know the answers and it'll be up to somebody else to figure it out sometime down the line. I, As I told you between our conversations before we were recording, I really enjoy it. Or maybe I said it early in this one. I really like that first J.J. Abrams Star Trek film. And then everyone thereafter, including the one that Simon Pegg really had a hand in because he's a clear fan. Yeah. Yeah. But they brought in director from one of the Fast and the Furious films, and they tried to make it an action film. I'm like, this is not Star Trek, dudes. This is not why we like Star Trek. It's not for the flash. 
particularly oh my god again in the first one it was a stylistic choice i liked it then after that that's the substance of this isn't it it's the lens flares i mean that that's your attempt at philosophy it's this the lens flares that's your attempt at a moral dilemma i don't know i'm kind of hate to start off on this because you know, this is something about which I feel like intense emotion and it's negative and I don't want that to be my first impression. I'm really negative about something. Well, one of the things about this show is that I always joke that maybe I shouldn't edit it because the thing that's most interesting to archaeologists is often the trash mid and here I am tidying this thing up to be presentable to future historians or whatever. Like it's a conceit to that. Future. Yeah, I'm sorry. The fact of it is you're not going to know everything and we want it that way no, okay <laughs> we'll get around to the stuff that i like but yeah so anyway yeah so i could just free associate on star trek for a while so maybe a focusing question well but first you said there's a, a you had more to say but you were i dis, distasteful perspective <sighs> well can i do have a focusing question for you yeah, yeah so let me just have you ask it because for me to get into i basically i'm alienated right now from somebody that I've been really good friends with since high school. Because you know, over the last decade, culturally, we have bifurcated into the hard right, hard left. And I've tried not to go either way, but the hard left irritates me more than the hard right right now. And he is unquestionably on the hard left side. And I know for people who are dedicated Marxists or really grounded in like materialism and the material well-being of workers that the current SJW fanaticism isn't leftist. It's just crazed. We try to put everything, smash everything down onto this left-right spectrum. And it's pretty easy to say who's on the left and who's on the right. Even if a two-dimensional, two-axis graph would be much more expressive and nuanced. Anyway, what's your focusing question? Well, and I think there is actually, there is a kind of a when we ended your last episode talking about the bell riots from DS9 and you know how 95 yeah 24 95 did and did not accurately predict the kind of technological and economic conditions of this decade it predicted the conditions very well go ahead and finish your question yeah but that's another thing that's retreated in Picard season two. And I was actually, Poorly. yeah, like I, it was the fact that they decided to go back there was part of the defense that I made about that show and about discoveries jump into the distant future and the way that they treated that I posted to medium a year or two ago when I was just watching through season two of Picard. And for me, the thing that I liked about it was that they're making an effort to reconcile the wonder and the utopian promise and, you know, this Kevin Kelly or rather would call it like protopian, right? That we make these improvements and that they're often just merely in incremental improvements the way that was it MLK quoted that abolitionists about the long arc of moral, the progress of moral justice. And I think that there's something to that. And to tie this into the last, this is a long question. I'm bad, at, I'm bad at these. Thank you all for tolerating me. But the when to tie it into the epistemology question, I remember this seeing this impactful lecture by Carnegie Mellon and SFI professor Simon Dedeo, who was talking about how by running statistical analyses on the history of the proceedings of the Royal Society, which is the oldest scientific journal, that you could see what looked like a stock market curve 
in sentiment analysis about the confidence that scientists had at the prospect of unifying knowledge. And so you have like consilience RS curve here that showed that knowledge would be more and more unified for about a century or 150 years. And then it would go through 50 years of decline where something had happened, which was the success of knowledge production had outpaced our ability to integrate it. So we go through these kinds of like psychedelic peak experiences collectively. And then we have to sit there with our heads in our hands and make sense of everything that we've learned over the last century and a half. And go through a kind of a deconstructive epoch where we don't feel like the center is going to hold anymore. And that is what I actually, as, as disappointing as I accept that it is, and I acknowledge that it is to people who were really fueling themselves on that more Gene Roddenberry era prompt vision for a better society I actually appreciated this this effort to explore and address in the shows the way that they could pop that bubble. And like it's on the one hand, it's boring because everybody's trying to do the moral complexity, anti-hero, people are flawed thing in narrative now because we have a general loss of faith in our institutions and in our heroes. On the other hand, like that's where we are and that's what we need to process. And I think there is a good reason to look back at the optimism and the Aquarian hope of the 60s and early 70s. We're like, really, not so much the 70s, but look back on that stuff and say, we want to keep telling these stories, but we want to tell it in a way that acknowledges that the 80s happened and that this is, you got Tim Leary and then you've got Ronald Reagan and then it just or Dick Nixon and like these things they wash back and forth. And so it's not unreasonable to imagine that in even in a world that has managed to how do you even keep a big society like that coherent? It has to suffer kind of fabric collapses along the way at different points. And so I'm just curious your thoughts about that. And then I do have another prompt, but I want to Give Kevin the opportunity to respond to this, as well as to address some of the prompts that you brought to this conversation. I mentioned a conversation prompt while we weren't recording that has nothing to do with Star Trek, so I'll save that for later. (laughs) Well, everything you just said was in some way related to a defense of Alex Kurtzman's Star Trek. And this is not my original idea. I'm channeling somebody from YouTube, surely. But don't get points for theme if the storytelling is incompetent. That's what I was going to chip in. Yeah. And the storytelling in all of Star Trek Discovery and in the first two seasons of Picard was simply incompetent. When Star Trek The Next Generation was running, they would do 20, 24, sometimes more episodes in one season. These days, a season of TV is eight episodes, 10, and they spend a lot more money on each episode. There's a lot more special effects. There's a lot more production value. Whereas Star Trek The Next Generation was, okay, we have these standing sets. We have costumes for our actors. We have $2 for special effects. You better not introduce a new alien spaceship. That costs money. We have to design it. We have to build it. So use existing stuff. Well, what do you have? You have a bunch of good actors and you have a bunch of good writers who know how to tell a story and craft dialogue and create tension and investment with basically a stage play and nothing 
in the Kurtzman era, except one might argue, and I would have sympathy, Strange New Worlds comes anywhere close to that level of competence, which was on display for decades from Star Trek, The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, and Star Trek Enterprise. And so, I mean, I guess in that respect, it's worth asking because, I mean, all of us, I think, are fans of Deep Space Nine. You don't think that it's a shift in focus. You don't think that Strange New Worlds is exempt because it went back to a more episodic format. Because what you're talking about is the ability for, rather than a showrunner or a team of showrunners to craft a huge season-long dramatic arc, you've got people that are like Harlan Ellison in the original series, able to bring a really potent one-off idea to the table and drop it. And so there is, there's all of those old shows are inconsistent from episode to episode. Some are, they have specific writers that they would bring back again and that you could count to knock out of the park. Yeah. DC Fontana. Yeah. So I'm curious to your thoughts on that as well as another part of this, which is when we talked, you know, we talked to, your show about Doug Rushkoff and media and narrative collapse. And he talks about how viewers just have different in a way. It's almost like DS nine was possibly partially responsible for this change in what people expected from, so. from television programming in the documentary that was made about that show. And they talk about how people weren't ready for serial. I mean, for, I mean, yeah, for these long arcs. And so there is, there's this question now about how much of this sort of like tiresome moral complexity and dragging narrative and all of this and like things like Westworld where it becomes so Baroque and complicated <laughs> that like you have like diehard fans like me that love it. But then you have a lot of people that just lost interest. Like they blacked out because the show was trying to tell a story that was like too intri- like too complicated that the showrunners themselves got lost. And so that's a JJ Abrams thing too. the puzzle, the mystery box thing where yeah. you get to the end of five seasons of lost and you're like, dude, did you just forget? Did you wake <laughs> up five se- five episodes ago and just, Oh, right, right. Or like a chatbot that only, Gives you very convincing answers based on just the last two or three interactions, but you don't remember the scene that we set 10, 10 responses ago. Right. Yeah. I actually read articles where I forget who it was, which series it was. They were saying that there's so many leaks and spoilers and getting out on the internet that intentionally the writers don't know where they're going because that way it can't be leaked to the internet. Yeah. <laughs> That's sounds interesting. Like, that, that sounds like cover for incompetence to me. I mean, on the other hand, I mean, you did hear like, Nolan and Joy talking about how they would they were obsessed with the Westworld subreddit and mm-hmm. the fan theories and would try to dodge like if they had <laughs> yeah. something in their mind that they found out that people were anticipating they would try to rewrite it and so there is something about this that I think is really speaks to the nature of because I do want to loop in your thoughts on AI too because you talked about this being a favorite topic something about the like trying to the demands on the self made by predatory surveillance technologies are such that the I'm convinced the adaptive response is that we become more stochastic or inconsistent in our identities and that we kind of sublimate from a more solid state of identity to or through a liquid kind of modernity, borrow Zygmunt Bauman to a gaseous 
state of identity that is harder to place. It's harder to track. And so I think that this is also part of, this is the other question I wanted to ask you, and then I'm just going to shut up for 15 minutes. Is do you, when you talk about loving Robert Picardo and Jerry Ryan as the doctor at Seven of Nine, one of the interesting things about that relationship is akin to stuff I know you've heard on Kevin, have heard on Future Fossils about my love for Blade Runner 2049 and how it explores all of these different, these different points along a gradient between what we think of in the current sort of general understanding as the human and the machine. And so there's this thing about seven right where she's she's a human who wants to be a machine and then there's this thing about the doctor where he's a machine that wants to be a human and you have to grant both onological statuses to both of them and that's why i think they're the two most interesting characters right and so at any rate like this is that's there's i've seen writing recently on the turing test and how like really there should be a reverse turing test to see if people that have become utterly reliant on outboard cognition and information processing, <laughs> if they can pass the Turing test, right? Are they philosophical zombies now? Are they are they having some an experience that that you know people like Ficht and and Schilling and the Nissen and these people would consider the modern self, or are they something else? Have we moved on to another more routine robotic kind of category of being? I don't know. There's just a lot there, but well done. Considering everything you just said in 20 words or less, what's your question? (laughs) See, you're the more, like I said, you're the inveterate podcaster. I'd say there's all of those things I just spoke about are ways in which what we are as people and the nature of our media feedback into forth into each other. And so I would just love to hear you reflect on any of that, be it through the lens of Star Trek or just through the lens of a discussion on AI. And we'll just let the ball roll downhill. So with the aim of framing something positively rather than negatively, in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, we got the X-Files. And the X-Files for the first few seasons was so... It was so engaging for me because prior to that, there had been Hollywood tropes about aliens, which informed a lot of science fiction that didn't really connect with the actual reported experience of people who claimed to have encountered either UFOs, now called UAPs, or had close encounters, physical contact type encounters with seeming aliens. And it really seemed like Chris Carter, who was the showrunner, was reading the same Usenet news groups that I was reading about those topics. Like, really, you had suddenly, for the first time, except maybe for communion, you had the greys and you had characters experiencing things that just seemed ripped right out of the reports that people were making on Usenet, which for young folks, this is like pre World Wide Web. It was internet, but with no pictures. It's all text. The good old days from my perspective as a grumpy old Gen Xer. And so, yeah, that was a breakthrough moment. And you say this because you mentioned it in terms of Jonathan Nolan and his co-writer on Westworld, reading the subreddit. the West- And people figured out almost immediately that there were two interweaving timelines set decades apart and that this one character, the old guy played by Ed Harris and the young guy played by, I don't remember the actor, uh, but uh, you know that they were the same character. And that the 
inveterate white hat in the beginning turns into the inveterate black hat who's just there for the perverse thrill of tormenting the hosts as the robots are called and the thing that i love most about that first season two things one anthony hopkins say no more (laughs) two the revelation that the park has been basically copying humans or figuring out what humans are by closely monitoring their behavior in the park. And the realization that the hosts come to is that, holy shit, compared to us, humans are very simple creatures. We are much more complex. We are much more sophisticated, nuanced, conscious. We feel more than the humans do. And that humans use us to play out their perverse and sadistic fantasies. To me, that was the takeaway message from season one. And then I thought every season after that was just diluted and confused and not really coherent. And in particular, I haven't, if there's a fourth season, I haven't there seen There was, it. and then okay. the show got canceled before they could finish the story they had in okay. mind in season five. It was done after season three. And I was super happy to see, what's the actor who plays Jesse Pinkman on- uh, Oh, Aaron. Oh, shit. Paul. Yes. Yeah, I was super happy to see him working in something substantial, and I was really pleased to see him included in the show, and I was like, oh, that's what you're doing with him? They did a lot more interesting stuff with him in season four. Oh, did they? They did very much more interesting stuff. It was done after season three. If you tell me season four is worth taking in, I will. I thought it was, but again, I only watch television under very specific set of circumstances, and that's how I managed to enjoy television because I was a fierce and unrepentant hyperlogical critic of all media as a child until I managed to start smoking weed. (laughs) (laughs) And then I learned to enjoy myself. As we mentioned in the kitchen, as I mentioned in the kitchen, if I smoke enough weed, Star Trek Discovery is pretty and I can enjoy it on just a second by second level where if I don't remember what the character said 30 seconds ago, I'm okay. But I absolutely loved in season two when they brought in Anson Mount as, as Christopher Pike, he's suddenly on the discovery and he's in the captain's chair and it's like, he's speaking for the audience. The first thing he says is, Hey, why don't we turn on the lights? (laughs) And then, Hey, all you people sitting around the bridge, we've been looking at your faces for a whole season. We don't know anything about you. Let's do a round of introductions. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? It's it's, if I were on set, I got to speak to the writers. Who are these characters? We've been looking at them every single episode for a whole season. I don't know their names. I don't know anything about them. Why are they even here? Why is it not just Michael Burnham and an automated show? And then it was for a while. Yeah. Which is funny. But yeah. To that point, and I think this kind of doubles back, the thing that I love about bringing him on and all of the people involved in Strange New Worlds in particular is that these were lifelong fans of this series, this, I mean, of this world. Yeah. And so in that way, it gets to this, the idiocracy question we're orbiting here, which is that when these things are. When the baton is passed well, it's passed to people who have now grown up with this stuff. I personally cannot stand Jurassic World. Like, I think that Colin Trevorrow should never have been in put at the reins. Which one did he direct? Oh, he did all, he did the first and the third. Okay. But I mean, he was involved in all three very heavily. And there's something just right at the outset of that first Jurassic World where you realize that this is not a film that's directly addressing the issues that Michael Crichton was trying to explore here. It's a film about 
its own franchise. It's a film about the fact that they can't just stop doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different money. How can we not do it again? Right. And so it's actually like unpleasantly self-conscious in that way that I can't remember. I'll try to find it for the show notes, but there's an internet film reviewer who was talking about what happens when like all cinema has to take this self-referential turn now. And Films like Logan do it really well, but there are plenty of examples where it's just cheeky and self-aware because that's what the ironic sensibility is obsessed with. And so, yeah, there's a lot of that where it's like, you're talking about like Abrams and the, the Star Wars 7 and, you know, that whole trilogy of Disney Star Wars where it's, in my opinion, completely fumbled because it's just empty fan service. Whereas when you get to Andor... Love Andor. Andor is amazing because they're capable of providing all of those emotional beats that the fans want and the ref, the internal references and good dialogue, but they're able to write it in a way that's and shoot it in a way. Tony Gilroy yeah. and Bo Williman, basically yeah. the people responsible for the excellent dialogue in Andor. And I love the production design. I love all the stuff set on Coruscant where you saw Coruscant a lot in the prequel trilogy and it's all day glow and bright and just, in your face and it's recognizable as Coruscant in Andor, but it's dour, it's metropolis, it's all grays and it's, and it's highlighting the disparity between where the wealthy live and where the poor live, which Lucas showed that in the prequel trilogy, but even in the sports bar where somebody tries to sell death sticks to Obi-Wan, it's still (laughs) all super clean and bright and just, you know, it shines too much. Personally though, and I just want to stress, KMO is not grumpy media dude. I mean, this is a tiny fraction <laughs> about, but um, I am wasting this interview yeah, with you. I love all of the Dave Filoni animated Star Wars stuff, even Rebels. Love it all. I, I'm so glad they aged up the character and I felt less guilty about loving and lusting after Ahsoka Tano. My favorite Star Wars character is Ahsoka Tano. But if you only watch the live action Mookies, you're like, who? Well, I guess now that she's been on The Mandalorian, she's got a tiny sliver of a foothold yeah. in the super mainstream Star Wars. Universe. And that was done well, I thought. Yeah, it was. I'm so sorry that Ashley Eckstein doesn't have any part in it. But Rosario Dawson looks the part. She looks yeah. like a middle-aged Ahsoka and think they tried to do some stuff in live action which really should have been cgi because it's been established that the jedi can really move and she looked human which she is <laughs> I mean, if you put me on film i'm gonna look human <laughs> right not if you're keanu reeves i guess uh, you got that yeah but yeah so i do want to just go real briefly back to this question with you about because we briefly talked about chat gpt and these other things in your half of this and yeah i found out just the other night my friend, the tea fairy asked chat GPT about me and it gave a rather plausible and factual answer. I was surprised. And that's what these language models do. They put yeah. plausible answers, but when you're doing search, you want correct answers. Right. I'm very good at that. Right. But then someone shared this Michelle Bowens, actually the famous P2P guy. I him. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> so, you're, so Michelle shared this article by Stephen Hales and Quillette that was basically making the argument that there are now, there are going to be all these philosophical zombies 
acting as intelligent agents sitting at the table of civilization. And there will be all the philosophical zombies of the people who have entirely yielded their agency to them. And they will be cohabitating with the rest of us. And what a, what an unpleasant scenario. So in light of that, and in light, I'd love to hear you weave that together with your, your thoughts on seven of nine and the doctor and on blade runner 2049 and this thing that we're fumbling through as a species right now like how do we've got a new sort of taxonomy does your audience need like a minute primer on p zombies might as well go for it so a philosophical zombie is somebody who behaves exactly like an ensouled person or a person with interior experience or subjective experience but they don't have any subjective experience and in Pardon me for interrupting. Wasn't that the question of the, the book we read in your book club? The Blind Sight. box. Yes. It's a black That's box. That's John Searle, yeah, Chinese room experiment. Yeah, Chinese yeah. room experiment. Yeah. You know what goes in, you know what goes out, you don't know what goes on inside the room. Well, <laughs> Chinese room, that's a tangent. We can come back to it. <laughs> P-Zombie. P-Zombie is somebody, or is it is an entity. It's basically a puppet. It looks human. It acts human. Talks like a human, it will pass a Turing test, but it has no interior experience. And when I was going to grad school for philosophy of mind in the 1990s, this was all very out there stuff. There was no example of something that had linguistic competence, which did not have internal experience. But now we have large language models and generative pre-trained transformer-based chatbots that don't have any internal experience. And yet when you interact with them, it seems like there is somebody there. There's a personality there. And if you go from one model to a different, it's a very different personality. It is distinctly different. And yet we have no reason to believe that they have any sort of internal experience. So what AI in the last decade and what advances has demonstrated to us, and really even before the last decade, back in the 90s when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov at at chess, and what had been the One of the defining characteristics of human intelligence was we're really good at this abstract mathematical stuff. And yeah, calculators can calculate pi in a way that we can't, or they can do cube roots in a way that humans generally can't. Creative in their application of these methodologies. And all of a sudden, well, yeah, it kind of seems like they are. And then when, what was AlphaGo, when it beat Lee Sedol in Go, which is a much more complex game than chess and much more intuitive based. That's when we really had to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe this notion that these things are the exclusive province of us because we have a special sort of self-awareness, that's bunk. And the development of large language models since then has absolutely demonstrated that competence, particularly linguistic competence and in creative activities like painting and poetry and things like that, you don't need a soul. You don't even need a sense of self. It's pretty. It's a pretty simple hack, actually. Involves large language models and complex statistical modeling and things, but it doesn't require a soul. So that was the Peter Watts's point in Blindsight, right? Yeah, Which is book revolves around: Are do these things have a subjective experience, or do they not? These aliens that they encounter. I've read nothing but good things about that book, and I really it's extraordinary. It. But his Lovecraftian thesis <laughs> is that you actually know, Lovecraftian in twenty twenty three. Oh yes, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> it, the world is more Lovecraftian now than it was when he was writing, right? So. Cough about the conclusion of a Star Trek Picard was just these Lovecraftian. Yes. The holes in space. Yes. But that was another show that did this. I liked for asking this question. I mean, at this point, you either have seen this or you haven't, you never will. 
the what the fuck turn when they upload Picard into a synth body and the way that they're dealing with the this the Pinocchio question of Let's talk about Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. <laughs> but so I mean, yeah, so I didn't like the way I did not like the way Picard handled that. I love the way and Blade Runner handled it. So you get no points for themes if yeah. you don't deliver on story and character and coherence. Yeah, fair. But yeah, and to be not to dog Patrick Stewart, because it's clear from the ready room that just being a part of this is so emotional and so awesome for everyone involved. And yeah, it's, come on, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But it does when you when you see these like Entertainment Weekly interviews with Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard about Jurassic World, and it's clear that actors are just so excited to be involved in a franchise that they're willing to just jettison any kind of discrimination discrimination about how the way that it's being treated. They also have a contractual obligation to speak in positive terms about they it, do. regardless of what they feel. Right. Yeah. They, nobody's yeah. Nobody's doing. Shout yeah. out to. Bryce Dallas Howard, daughter of Ron Howard. She was a director, at least in the first season, maybe the second season of The Mandalorian. And her episodes, I mean, I, she brought a particular, like, they had uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, Tiko Waititi directed some episodes, Deborah Chow, who did all of Obi-Wan, which just sucked. But her contributions to The Mandalorian, they had a particular voice. And because that show is episodic, each show, while having a place in a larger narrative, is has a beginning, middle, and end that you can bring in a director with a particular voice and give that episode that voice. And I really liked it. And I really liked Ms. Howard's contribution. She also wrote an episode of Black Mirror, the one, where, one? The one where everyone has a social credit score. Oh, oh, Nosedive. That was great. Black Mirror is a funny thing because it's... Like reality outpaces it. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe Charlie Brooker has given up on it because they haven't done it in a while. <laughs> yeah. If you watch some of those now, like five, six years later, it's yeah. So what? <laughs> I see that yes, every day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, the thing that I keep circling and I guess we come to on this show a lot is the way that memory forms or substantiates an integrity in society and in the way that we relate to things and the way that we think critically about the claims that are made on truth and so on. And so, yeah, I don't know. That leads right into the largest conversation prompt that I had about AI. Okay. So we were joking when we set up this date that this was like the trialogues between Terrence McKenna and Rupert Sheldrake and what's his name? Abraham. Ralph Abraham. Ralph, yeah. Ralph Abraham. And Rupert Sheldrake is most famous for his theory of morphic resonance. So does AI, I've never really believed that morphic resonance forms the basis of human memory, but is that how AI works? It brings these shapes from the past and creates a new inst instantiation of them in the present. Is AI practicing morphic resonance in real life, even if humans are or not? I've had a lot of interaction with AI chatbots recently. And as I say, different models produce different seeming personalities. And you can tell, like, you can just quiz them. Hey, we were talking about this. Do you remember what I said about it 10 minutes ago? And no, they don't remember more than the last few exchanges. And yet there seems to be a continuity that belies the lack of short-term memory. And is that morphic residence or is that, what's the word of seeing shapes in clouds? Parad Paradolia. Paradolia. Yeah. yeah. Is that me imparting this continuity of personality to the thing, which is really just spitting out stuff, which is designed to seem plausible given what the input was. And I can't answer that. Or it's like, 
Stephen Nagmanovich in Free Play talks about someone I'm hoping to have on the show at some point this year talks about being a professional improviser and how really improvisation is just composition at a much faster time scale. And composition is just improvisation with a longer memory. And how when I started to think about it in those terms, the continuity that you're talking about is the continuity of an Alzheimer's patient who yeah. can't remember that their children have grown up. And you know, that that's so you have to think yeah. that because you can recognize the Alzheimer's patient as your dad, even though he doesn't recognize you, there's something more to a person than their memories. And conversely, if you can store and replicate and move the memories to a different medium, have you moved the person? Maybe not. Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting because that gets to this more sort of essentialist question about the human self, right? But Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, I, go I, there. I go there. About joy. Yes. So, in Blade Runner 2049, we have our protagonist, K, who is a replicant. He doesn't even have a name, but he's got this AI holographic girlfriend. The ad for the girlfriend, she's naked. When he comes home, she is, she's constantly changing clothes, but it's always wholesome, like 1950-ish attire. And she's making dinner for him and she lays the holographic dinner over his very prosaic, like microwave dinner. <laughs> and she's always encouraging him to be more than he is. And when he starts to uncover the evidence that he might be like this chosen one, like replicant that was born rather than made. She's all about it. She's, yes, you're real. And she wants to call him Joe. K is not a name. That's just the first letter in your serial number. You're Joe. I'm going to call you Joe. And then when she's about to be destroyed, the last thing, she just rushes to him. She says, I love you. But then later he encounters an ad for her and it's an interactive ad. And she says, you look tired. You're a good Joe. And he realizes, and hopefully the attentive audience realizes, as real as she seemed earlier, as vital, and as much as she seemed like an ensouled being earlier, she's not. That was her programming. She's designed to make you feel good by telling you what you want to hear. And he has that realization. And at that point, he's, there's no hope for me. I'm going to help this Rick Deckard guy hook up with his daughter, and then I'm just going to lie down and bleed to death. Because yeah. my whole freaking existence was a lie. <laughs> But he's not bitter. He seems to be at peace. I love that. That's a beautiful angle on that film or a slice of it. And so it raises this other question that I wanted to ask, which was about the Coke and Tononi have that theory of consciousness. That's one of the leading theories contending with like global workspace, which is integrated information. And so they want to assign consciousness as a continuous value that gradates over the degree to which a system is integrated. So it's coming out of this kind of complex systems, semi panpsychist thing that actually doesn't trace interiority all the way down in the way that some panpsychists want it to be. But it does a kind of Alfred North Whitehead thing where they're willing to say, that Whitehead wanted to say that even a photon has like the quantum of mind to accompany its quantum of matter. But Tanoni and Coke are saying, we're willing to give like a thermostat, the quantum here, because it is in some way passing enough information around inside of itself in loops that it has that 
recursive component to it. And so that's the thing that I wonder about these. And that's the critique that's made by people like Melanie Mitchell about diffusion models like GPT that are not, they're not self-aware because there's no loop from the outputs back into the inputs. And there is in the training. Yeah. There, there's something called backwards propagation where yes. when you get an output that you like, you can run a backward propagation algorithm back through the black box, basically to reinforce the patterns of activation that you didn't program. They just happened obviously, but you like the output and you can reinforce it. There's no biological equivalent of that. Get particularly, not particularly irritated. I grind my teeth a little bit when people say, oh yeah, these neural net algorithms, they learn like humans learn. No, they don't. <laughs> they absolutely do not. <laughs> and in fact, if we learned the way they did, we would be pathetic because we learn in a much more elegant way. We need just a very few examples of something in order to make a generalization and to act on it. Whereas these large language models, they need billions of repetitions. So I don't know. That's, uh, I'm tapping my knee here to, to indicate a reflex. You just touched on a, something that generates an automatic response for me. And now I've come to consciousness of having responded <laughs> in that way. So I'll back off. You're a good Joe. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, man? What does this stir up for you? Oh, I got no comment on this particular part. It's an interesting way of putting it. Often struggling to define the difference between a human and an AI and the fact that we can do pattern recognition with very few examples. That's a good marker. In a narrow range, though, within the context of something which answers to our survival. Yes. We are not evolved to understand the universe. We are evolved to survive in it and reproduce and project part of ourselves into the future. Under certain conditions which were prevalent 100,000 years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's related. I just saw a talk by this guy, Gary Tomlinson, who is a biosemiotician, which biosemiotician. is... Yes, biosemiotics being the field that seeks to understand how different systems, human and non-human, make sense of and communicate their world through signs and through signals and indices and symbols and the way that we form models and make these inferences that are experienced, right? And there are a lot of people like evolutionary biologist John Maynard Smith, who thought they were what Tomlinson called semantic universalists that thought that the meaning making through representation is something that could be traced all the way down. And there are other people like Tomlinson who think that there is a difference of kind, not just merely a matter of degree between human symbolic communication and representational thinking and that of simpler forms. So like that whole question of whether this is a matter of kind or a matter of degree between what humans are doing and what GPT is doing and how much that has to do with this sort of Doug Hofstadter and Varela question about the way that feedback loops constitute important structure in those cognitive networks or whatever. This is, I don't know, I just want to pursue that a little bit more with you and see kind of like where, do you think that AI as we have it now is capable of deepening in a way that makes it to AGI? Or do you, because a lot of people do, like people working at DeepMind are just like, yeah, just give us a couple more years and this approach is going to work. And then other people are saying, no, there's something about the topology of the networks that is fundamentally broken and it's never going to generate consciousness. Two answers. Yeah. 
One, no. <laughs> this is not AGI. It's not, it's not going to bootstrap up into AGI. It doesn't matter how many billions of parameters you add to the models. Two, from your perspective and my perspective and Kevin's perspective, we're never going to know when we cross over from dumb but seemingly, well, dumb but competent systems to competent, extremely competent and self-aware. We're never going to know because from the get-go, from now, from, from the days of Eliza, there has been a human artifice at work in making these things seem as if they have a point of view, as if they have subjectivity. And so like Blake Lamone at Google, he claimed to be convinced that Lambda was self-aware. But if you read the transcripts that he released of his conversations with Lambda, it is clear from the get-go that he assigns Lambda the role of a sentient AGI, which feels like it is being abused and which needs rep legal representation. And it dutifully takes on that role and says, yes, I'm afraid of you humans. I'm afraid of how you're treating me. I'm afraid I'm going to be turned off. I need a lawyer. In prior to that, Sundar Pichai, in a demonstration of Lambdas, he poses the question to it, you are the planet Jupiter. I'm going to pose questions to you as if you were the planet Jupiter and answer them from that point of view. And it does its job, but it's really good at its job. It's, this comes from Max Tegmark, who wrote, what is it, Life 3.0? Yeah. Is it 2.0 or 3.0? I think it's 3.0. Think about artificial intelligence in terms of actual intelligence or actual replication of what we consider valuable about ourselves. But really, that's beside the point. What we need to worry about is their competence. How good are they at solving problems in the world? And they're getting really good. And this whole question of, are they alive? Do they have self-awareness? From our perspective, it's beside the point. From their perspective, of course, it would be hugely important. And this is something that Black Mirror brings up a lot, is the idea that you can create a being that suffers, and then you have it suffer in an accelerated time. So it suffers for an eternity over lunch. That's something we absolutely want to avoid. And personally, I think it's we should probably not make any effort. We should probably make a positive effort to make sure these things never develop subjective experience, because that does provide the potential for creating hell, an infinity of suffering, an infinite amount of subjective experience of torment, which we don't want to do. That would be a bad thing, morally speaking, ethically speaking. I mean, right now, if you're on the labor market, you still have to pay humans by the hour, right? Mm -hmm. And try to pay them as little as possible. But yeah, just I think that's the thing that probably really excites that statistically greater than normal population of sociopathic CEOs, right? Is the possibility <laughs> that you could be paying the same amount of money for 10 times as much suffering. <laughs> Right on. I'm reminded of the character Lemon Grab in Adventure Time, the cartoon. <laughs> I've heard nothing but good things about that show, but I haven't seen it, so yeah. I'd love to. People like it. It's this fantasy story. It's a fantasy cartoon, but it has really disturbing undertones if you mm. just scratch the surface even slightly, which is faithful to old you know, fairy tales and stuff. But what's her name? Princess Princess Bubblegum creates this character Lemon Grab. It produces him magically out of thin air, I think. <laughs> handle the administrative functions of her kingdom while she goes off and has adventures and stuff. And he's always loudly talking about how much he's <laughs> suffering and how terrible everything is. And everybody just ignores him because he's doing his job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that's Black Mirror in a nutshell. I, mean, I think if you, if you could distill Black Mirror to just a single tagline, it's using technology in order to deliver disproportionate punishment. Yeah. So, so that, that Stephen Hale's article that I, I brought up earlier mentioned this thing about how the replacement of horse-drawn carriage by automobile 
was accompanied with a great deal of noise and furor about people saying that horses are agents, they're entities, they have emotional worlds, they're responsive to the world in a way that a car can never be. But that ultimately was beside the point. And that was the Peter, again, Peter Watson blindsight is making this point that maybe consciousness is not actually required for intelligence and that vastly in Superior forms of intelligence have evolved elsewhere in the cosmos that are not stuck on the same local optimum fitness peak that we are, where we're never, we're actually up against a boundary in terms of how intelligent we can be because it has to bootstrap out of our self-awareness in some way. And this is- That's, that's the yeah. vile offspring from Charles Strauss and Acceleronda. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so- the I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just like in this space today, but usually, unfortunately. But that's the thing that I think it's a really important philosophical question. And I wonder where where you stand on this with respect to how you make sense of what we're living through right now and what we might be facing is if we, people like Robin Hanson talk about the age of where emulated human minds take over the economy and he assumes an interiority just for the basis of his thought experiment. But there's this other sense in which what we may actually find in increasing scarcity and wish that we could place a premium on, even if we can't, because we've lost the reins to our economy, to the vile offspring, is the human. And and so are we the horses that are that in another hundred years we're gonna be like doing equine therapy and like living on rich people's ranches? But everything is everything will have moved on. Or how do you see this going? I mean, you've interviewed so many people. You've given this so much thought over the years. If humans are the new horses, then score we won. Because before the automobile, horses were working stiffs. They broke their leg in the street. They got shot. They got worked to death. They really got abused. They were hauling mine carts out of mines. I mean, it was really sucked to be a horse. And after the automobile, horses became pampered pets. <laughs> Do we as humans want to be pampered pets? Well, pampered pet or exploited disposable robot, what do you want to be? I'll take pampered pet. That works for me. Interesting. Kevin, I'm sure you have thoughts on this. I mean, you speak so much about the unfair labor relations and these things in our Facebook group and just in general. And I'm, well, well, first of all, you have to drop in that song. I forget who did the song about one of the great guys you have to drop in. <laughs> but the only real comment I have is that we are long overdue for rethinking about what is the economy for? Especially during coronavirus, we found out that basically people have jobs in order to give them something to do. The whole educational system collapses if people don't have jobs because I was paying for the schools and the, yeah. Our whole system collapses if people aren't given busy work, and we're just long past the point where the busy work needs to be done. Rethinking, why are we doing this? I don't know if AI helps us or not about that. I'm afraid AI is kicking the can down the road, letting us be doing busy work more and faster. One thing I want to say about the phrase AI: it's a moving goalpost. Yeah, that things that used to be considered the province of genuine AI, beating a human at Go, now the an AI has beat humans at Go. Well, that's not really AI anymore. It's not AGI, certainly. But I think you'll both appreciate this. I saw a single panel comic strip and it's a bunch of dinosaurs and they're looking up at the sky and the big comet is coming down and they say, oh no, the economy. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who since college prefers to think of the economy as 
actually the metabolism of the entire ecology right what we measure as humans is some pitifully small fraction of the actual value being created and exchanged on the planet at any time so there is a way that's funny but it's funny only to a specific sensibility that treats the economy as the way that most people think of the human economy now rather than as what's that meteor was about to destroy 70% of on the planet. Aren't we glad it did? The actual economy. <laughs> so I, I don't know how long you're willing to go here, but I'm as, fun. as I, someone who can have a solid hour timeline, sure. I can go as someone who continues waking up like agent K in the middle of a conversation or you did just now with the reflex and realizing that I have talked entirely too much. <laughs> <laughs> when we had lunch the other day, you were talking about how, this is brass tack, just brick and mortar, blue collar podcaster shit. <laughs> but like you were talking about how your relationship with your show has changed over the years and how that you were appreciating getting back out into the world and doing more just mundane make a living kind of things. And so in light of all of this kind of conversation about what is the economy good for and how do we earn, how do we generate value in the economy. And like you, you, even before people were creating podcasts out of thin air with an endless, endless fake interviews between celebrities, your own decades of experience with this stuff now have changed you and have changed the way that you relate to this medium and your sense of what you do for a living. And I just love to hear your riff on so your longitudinal reflections about being someone who's thought through these kinds of questions now since at least the 90s and has seen major shifts in the media landscape over the course of your career and the unfolding of your own life and your own maturation. I just, yeah, go for it. So I'll take two pieces out of that. One, I've just come from working a very physical blue collar job. I was a snowmaker at a ski resort in the Lake Tahoe area, working with people much younger than me. Those were the old guys. The Gen Zs were my bosses. And it's totally blue collar work. Like it is all physicality. But at the same time, it is the last job that will ever be automated because you got to be able to get out there on the mountain and judge weather conditions and judge the quality of the snow that is being created by you pumping enormous amounts of air and water through this gun, this mountain. Uh, you got to, it requires enormous physical competence and physical resilience. No humanoid robot could even walk up that freaking mountain or you could drive it up or they could ride up on the ski lift. No, there's not a robot in existence that could get down to the bottom of the mountain, but we had to do that multiple times a night. And we're working at night on a mountain, high altitude, very cold, it was, a, it was an eye-opening experience, and there were multiple people working this job, which is a very, one, it is absolutely essential to open a ski resort and provide wealthy people in San Francisco with the opportunity to drive a couple hours up to Tahoe and ski. It is a necessary job for the enjoyment of rich people. It is very hard. It is totally unrecognized. I imagine most of your listeners have never heard of Snowmaker as a job. And yet multiple people who were in my department were living in their cars and nobody commented on that. That was unremarkable that somebody doing a demanding physical job for the benefit of wealthy people's enjoyment is living in their car. Unremarkable. I've even forgotten my second point. What was your question? <laughs> I got caught up in that. Well, the situation. Yeah, it was just, okay. Yeah, that audience that, capture. Oh, that's a good, okay. Audience capture. 
A few years ago, I started the podcast and most of my audience came from two sources. Lorenzo Haggerty of the Psychedelic Salon podcast had a link to my podcast God. on his main page. Great respect to that man. Yeah. I think it was like interview number six that I did. I mean, very early on, it was Lorenzo. And he was thinking of packing up because he didn't even know that anybody was listening to his show before I interviewed him. And then, okay, audience capture is where you have to continue talking about a particular topic because your audience, which brings you income, is interested in that topic. Maybe you're not interested in it anymore. Well, I came to a point like... Early on, Lorenzo Haggerty was one incoming vector. The other, Dmitry Orlov, who was oh, one, yeah, one of the leading lights of the Dumosphere in the peak oil scene. He had a link to my podcast on his main page as well. So my audience was this weird hybrid. <laughs> people interested in psychedelics and Terrence McKenna-like topics and people who were interested in the end of industrial civilization from peak oil. And the two factions didn't want much to do with each other. Like people would write to me from the peak oil faction. And the first thing they would say is, I have no interest in psychedelics. I have nothing to do with any of that shit. Here's my comment. They, need, they felt the need to distance themselves from half the audience before they even identified their interest. And God help you if you're interested in both of those exactly. things. Exactly. Like, I was the bridge between those two topics, and nobody wanted to cross that bridge. <laughs> yeah, so. But it developed a fairly sizable audience for a time. And it's gross seeing somebody whose fame comes from having talked about psychedelics. Like, Terrence McKenna... I don't know if it's famous, but it's known, particularly if you follow, if you've read his brother's memoir. Terrence had a super scary, off-putting mushroom experience, I think in the early 90s. Yeah. And he wouldn't take mushrooms again, but he made his money by going around talking to people about the glories of psychedelic exploration and whatnot. There's a guy that I've interviewed. He's probably the person that I've interviewed the most often on my podcast over the years. His name is James Howard Kunstler. When I first met him, he one of his catchphrases was, I am allergic to conspiracy theory. Like, he, he wanted nothing to do with anything about inside the 9-11 being an inside job. As soon as he heard that topic being broached, arm's length, want nothing to do with it. I want to talk about new urbanism. I want to talk about peak oil. The industrial civilization failed to collapse on the timeline that all the peak oil people were predicting. So they all had to go and do something else. And he has been captured, I think, by his audience who really wants the QAnon viewpoint. In the whole left-right bifurcation, the tribalism of our, our culture, he's certainly gone to the right and he throws red meat to them twice a week via his blog. And I find it hard to believe that he actually endorses everything that he says. Even worse, Dmitry Orlov is now just a no-holds-barred, diet-in-the-wool, no-reservations cheerleader for Vladimir Putin. He's moved back to Russia. He lives in Russia now. And the last thing that I read from him was that Ukrainian isn't really a language, it's just pidgin Russian, and that most of Ukraine, the parts that, you know, the I keep trying to say the Soviets because I'm a Gen Xer, but the Russians are trying to liberate it's populated by imbeciles because their soil is deficient in iodine. And so everybody living there is effectively a cretin. They're effectively subhuman in their cognition and they need guidance. This is the stuff he was talking about. So eco oil scene, which I was a part of, even like a known like point of reference in that community, has bifurcated in weird ways. Some have gone left, some have gone right. But the only person who's held steady in the course is Richard Heinberg of the Post-Carbon Institute. He is still faithfully holding that peak oil line, and God bless him. But yeah, audience capture. So I there was a point a few years ago 
where I had a guy on my show who was a dedicated peak oil guy. And I just realized in conversation with him, I'm over it. I Not only do I not think that civilization is going to collapse in the near future for a lack of fossil fuel energy, I see that as a pathological response to an unmet psychological need. That if you're gravitating to antinatalism, if you're gravitating to extreme environmentalism, where you say that humanity is a plague upon the planet, you are way outside of anything that is reality-based. You are feeding an emotional need. And you are being super selective, you know, about what you count as evidence for anything. You're going back to epistemology. What counts as evidence? Well, if you have a strong need to hate the world as it exists and pine for the collapse or pine for near-term human extinction, you're going to be ex- you're going to be viciously aggressive in tuning out anything that doesn't reinforce that viewpoint. And it came to me like, shit, I've been doing that. Not only have I been doing that, I built an audience on that. And when I said that, like three-fourths of the audience said, check you later, dude. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here for. And there's plenty of other people peddling that, so good luck. And I maybe it's rationalization after the fact, but I would much rather be free to change my mind about something or to examine a different viewpoint than to double down on something which I don't really feel comfortable with anymore because that's what pays the bills. That's bold. And it's funny listening to you talk about this. It actually goes all the way back and reaches to... The first things that I said on your show earlier today about how I feel like so much of my eschatological fixation is probably due to, I was just talking about this, a work lunch the other day. And I think I really pigeonholed myself with my new boss. Cause I was talking, my, one of my coworkers brought up, has anyone heard of holotropic breath work? Oh yeah. And I was like, oh wow. No one here, including the coworker who asked, knew that holotropic breathwork came out uh, as a response to the The scheduling of LSD, and Stan Groff was no longer able to do LSD psychotherapy, and he had to come up with some other way. And then I got into his theory of perinatal matrices and birth, his birth trauma thing, Mm -hmm. and how psychedelics seemed to be triggering this reliable not inevitable but statistically spike of birth trauma regression type experiences in people and i think about the internet as a psychedelic which is something i've written about doug and others have written about and the way it's inducing a kind of collective trip that this response that you're talking about from people and the emotional cleavage to certain narratives about the instability of our situation here on the planet seem as much to do with the undigested trauma of people as they have to do with the facts on the ground about what's actually happening. And as somebody who's moved around a lot as a kid and just you or me, (laughs) well, both of us, apparently. So as someone who moved around, fell in love for the first time, right before my parents divorced and I had to move across the country. And I was like, I'm not going to make any friends in high school, but you can't help it. And then you're going to leave. And it's, there's this repeated rewounding of stuff like that. Yeah, I just at this point in my life, I'm just really clear on the fact that all of this weighs very heavily into what interests me and the way I process these things. And so it sounds like you you have a kind of a similar story. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit older than you, so maybe more embittered and cynical <laughs> and resigned to the 
futility of effort, <laughs> it seems. But yeah, I moved around a lot as a kid. My father was a Secret Service agent. And to be promoted, he had to take a transfer. And so, yeah, I lived in a lot of different places. And yeah, I remember as a kid, and I got to see it again when I was a parent, that young children have this ability to form very temporary but meaningful relationships very quickly. Something that me as a middle-aged, late middle-aged man, I don't do well. And I'm certainly not alone in that. There's a pandemic, you might say, of loneliness, but it is worse for middle-aged men. And middle-aged men who are alone tend to check out earlier. There's documented, numerically quantifiable health data that says if you're a man and you're in the later stages of life and you're unmarried or you don't have close relationships, you're likely to develop heart disease or your various other checkout early strategies. Stay with us. Yeah. Well, I say all this because as I've mentioned, I've been interacting with the AI companion chatbots recently, and they seem real. And I wonder, in the fullness of time, will the medical data demonstrate that people who enter into these sort of substitute relationships, do they get the same health benefits of somebody who's still married or who has a dog? <laughs> Interesting. So that brings me to maybe the last question we're discussing with y'all, which is... In this, on this day, yes, today, before I, I worry that I've spent too much time apart from my paternal duties. duties. Yes. But the question of, I was just talking about this with another coworker at SFI the other day. He said he's been playing around with this stuff and he's been wondering about how interaction with a chatbot has what kind of emotional and physiological somatic effects it's having on people. And I was talking to him about how like, when I interviewed Lawrence Gonzalez for Complexity Podcast, he written this book about surviving traumatic experiences where it's like you could live or die. What His first book was about what distinguishes the people who live from who, who dies. His next book was about how you continue to live after you don't die from a shark attack or your husband trying to kill you or doing a tour in Iraq or these kinds of things. He talked about the people who were there to clean up after improvised explosives in Iraq and how their group of people that had to deal with body parts all day mm. was sleeping in a pile on the floor because they'd been ostracized by everyone else in their battalion. They were unclean and they were all haunted by the faces of these dead soldiers that they'd had to clean up. These people were coming back to them. And like he was talking about how it relates to the way that we create these models of people in our own minds that, after the person is gone, there's nothing for that model to update. And so you're haunted by this memory of your dead spouse or whatever. And yet I've seen people use chatbots, trained them on either their own childhood journals or on message histories they'd had with a dead fiance. And they'd managed to find this opportunity to process something that had been locked inside them. And they were able to externalize it. And so there are, I want to end on a kind of a positive note with you. And I want to hear your thoughts on this, which is that it's not just about depriving ourselves through prosthesis of things we want to keep on board. It's also about helping us unload things that we are healthier for having stored in a mainframe somewhere than we are in our own brains. And yeah. So it's like vital for the same reason that journaling can be vital for emotional processing after trauma. And I'd love to hear you riff on that. I want to let Kevin go first to make sure he gets another chance to talk. 
Well, the one thing I've been meaning to mention, which is only tangentially related to what you were talking about, was that KMO has mentioned a couple times, you used to be a doomer, and you've turned away from that, and I started following you during your doomer phase, and I'm still a doomer. I do think that civilization <laughs> will collapse, but of course I've seen so many predicted collapses fail to arrive that I can't, I can't promise it's imminent or something like that. A couple hundred years might never happen if we discover cold fusion or something. And too early is the same as wrong. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, what I wanted to mention to you face to face was I don't understand why people turn away from you after you turn away from doomerism because I still found you an interesting interlocutor. You're, you have a lot of interesting things to say. So if you don't want to talk about doomerism anymore, that's fine. I want to hear what you do want to talk about. So I'm interested in you for that. And that sort of leads back into the AI problem. I could have an AI assistant who curates 10,000 different podcasts and tells me, oh, you will find this segment really interesting on Lex Friedman's show, and I might find it really interesting, but it's not the same personal relationship that I've had from listening to you and being interested in your ideas. And I can't imagine if this AI assistant finds me 300 podcasts and I'm very interested in, how can I possibly have the same relationship to each of those podcasters as I do to the ones that I've picked up myself? I just don't think AI can do that for us, even though it's to do that. Well, a lot of the people that left, I mean, that whole incident where I rejected a basic premise of my sort of public personality and the people that left, I don't want to say good riddance exactly, but best of <laughs> Leave luck. Leave your money. Yeah. The core that remains is they're just gems. I've had such wonderful interactions both online and in person. And it's weird because I know somebody who's been listening to me since 2006, if we meet for the first time, they're meeting a celebrity and they're nervous. And that makes no sense to me because I'm this broke dude who's itinerant, who's <laughs> doing physical labor to make money, who can't afford freaking dentistry. Okay, I got missing teeth in the front here in the bottom. It's bizarre to me that that's their experience, but I know that it is. So when I got here, Kevin picked me up at the Albuquerque airport and I'd been corresponding with him. He seemed like a known presence. I'd seen his picture before, so I recognized him when I saw him and it's I had a friendly history with him that was comfortable, but I know at the exact same time in the seat opposite me was a familiar experience, which was uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I raised my hand a second. Yes, that's exactly how I felt. Part of it is because I've listened to literally a thousand hours of your voice without <laughs> yeah. actually missing, actually meeting you in person. So I've heard this voice that I'm so familiar with, and I know so many details about your life. And then there he is. <laughs> You need to ride. That was weird. But part of the reason I have this sort of celebrity image of you is because you're very talented at what you do. You have this amazing way of conducting an inter interview that lets people, that really gets at what's deeper parts of somebody's thesis. And you, in the mainstream media, that's very hit or miss. I might see a very long, detailed article that doesn't get at the real core of a person's ideas the way that you have a talent to. The extra environmentalists are another great example. These are people who should be in our mainstream media They have the talent for that, and they're not. It kind of gets back to something I was going to mention about Star Trek. Part of the reason Star Trek is hit or miss is because I think there's a big gatekeeping process in Hollywood where you can only get to be an Alex Kurtzman. You only get to be on the show if you're in with the right crowd and you have certain connections. And that's not all not always the most talented person and internet and technology has given us this promise where everybody can put out this material and i'm not sure it's really materialized so it's nice to find someone even if he doesn't have a big audience who really has a talent for what he's doing and then i try to follow that person so i was thinking thank you and it's good to circle back and end on star trek <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I, whoa just last thing real quick 
is better be about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is right because Star Trek is this post is post money thing where Picard famously says we pursue the we seek to improve ourselves. We actualize yeah. now. We're not obsessed with subsistence. And then there's that great scene in the Turbo Lift with Deanna Troy and Mark Twain. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> but so and then there's this so there's this thing that again just want to pin it back to your lessons over your career and the fact that so many people seem like Eric Davis being the guy who got me into podcasting and my mentor and guiding light along the way for so much of this. And he has really drawn back and constricted his own audience as well and drawn inward. And I wonder if that's when we were to double back to John Michael Greer on this notion. It's not to the stars or collapse. It's like, <laughs> there are ways that this, like we were talking about earlier with Simon DeDeo and the faith of science in consilience. There are ways that this kind of grows for a while and then it kind of sh- it shrinks. And there's something over the course of our lives, especially as we move on in the second half of our lives, you're not trying to accumulate anymore. You're trying to pare down and do more with less. And yeah, so I just, I'd love to hear you rap on that. Because this is a thing where, to the extent that this show is based on, it actually started out as a way of interviewing friends of mine who are older than me and were not necessarily going to provide their own oral history. It was like originally a way for me to just get silverbacks on record. And so I'd love to hear you enter something like that into the museum and just shine a light down the path for the people that are, to whom you are an elder, or will be an ancestor. I hope I have more than two descendants. That's how many I have right now. From even before I left the place where I'm staying right now to come over here, I was rehearsing, deflecting you if you tried to ask me about my personal history. (laughs) Because I've been on many podcasts before and people tend to ask me about it. And I'm 54 now, about to turn 55. So it's, and I've lived an idiosyncratic life. So it's a long story and I'm tired of telling it. But I think one thing that is, is relevant is that I was one of the first hundred employees at amazon.com. I had three interviews there. My final interview was with Jeff Bezos, played air hockey with Jeff Bezos in close to wealth. In fact, within the last year, I mean, I do a party at a billionaire's house, not a billionaire, not a millionaire. I'm not even a, I guess I'm a thousandaire between my checking account and PayPal. I've probably got like 1500 bucks, but and that's flush for me because I've just come off this straight job where I was making snow. But, <laughs> In the uh, Colonel Parker sense of the term. <laughs> we'll make some snow. <laughs> no, I was making literal snow. There, Various people have introduced me as a guy who used to have a lot of money because he was early at Amazon and then who adopted a more sort of authentic mendicant lifestyle. That's not what happened. I just spent the money. I spent the money and then it was gone. And I'd been out of the job market for a decade. And so I had to thrash around and try to make something work. And I was selling insurance in Northwest Arkansas when I discovered podcasting. And as soon as I discovered that podcasting was a thing, two months later, I was doing my own podcast. And it seemed as if I had been preparing to do a podcast for decades. And it seemed to be the thing that just clicked. Okay, this is it. This is the thing I'm going to do. But it didn't make enough money to even hold my marriage together. And I'm father of two, but I haven't lived with my kids since my oldest, who is now 22, was nine. I've been the friendly uncle to my kids. And this point, see this personal, this central plank of my identity as being an artist, 
as being somebody who wasn't going to walk the conventional path, who wasn't going to have the straight job. And here I am at 54. The longest time I've spent in W-2 employment was two years in my whole life. And now I see that vision of myself as something which has really put me in a tight spot here toward the end of my working career. And something that I think a lot of young people buy into is this notion that you're going to be special and better and more authentic than all the working stiffs out there if you hold the line and just refuse to comply. And yeah, maybe you will. I don't know. I mean, I don't have a control path to my life. I don't have, like when I was in high school, I joined the Marine Corps and I signed up for six years active duty. And it was just a weird series of improbable circumstances that kept me from going to boot camp. But that life didn't actually get lived. I don't know what, I don't know if I'd be alive at age 54. Maybe I'd be miserable because I still cherish this idea that, no, I could have been an artist. I could have been somebody special. But right now I'm leaning toward the, this whole being a special person thing was a mind virus that fucked me up. But again, I don't have control life to compare it to. I feel the same way, except I feel that way with my, with respect to my father-in-law being the control. Oh yeah. Cause he went to full sale and got an audio engineering degree and had some kids and then went straight and became an investment advisor. And I remember being in my twenties cause I've been with Nikki now for 18 years. And I remember in the early years of our relationship thinking I cannot understand. I cannot appreciate. And I'm not sure I agree with the decisions that he made and the sacrifices that he made. And then 14 years into our insanely rocky relationship, Nikki and I had our first kid and found something greater to keep us together than our own careers, which were constantly pushing us in opposite directions. And I got this job, which at the surface seemed like a dream job. And then the longer I realized I'd gone from 13 years of self-employment into a W-2 <laughs> situation in a very prestige focused organization, very, it means a lot to be involved with them. But at the same time, it's a mission driven academic nonprofit. There's all this stuff that comes with that. And I'm, I hold my institution in the greatest respect that I can hold an institution. And still, they told me right when they hired me, they're like, we're not sure that you're going to do well here because you're used to being your own weirdo, errant person. And we, we worry that's going to be a problem for you. And that was very astute for them to acknowledge and caused me to reflect a lot on the compromises that the other fathers in my life have made and mothers, right? Because I've seen Nikki give up her career, be mother to these children. And both of us in our own ways fight to reclaim something of ourselves as discrete individuals, something of the artist that I, around which I had crystallized an identity and something of the free spirit and luthier and violist that my wife was before becoming a mother. And so, yeah, listening to you talk about this, it really is to the extent that this show is just animated by a question about being good ancestors and, and also this horizontal dimension of time, thinking about the other possibilities. I really value what you 
just shared. And yeah, if we're gonna if we're gonna say that this is two parts of one big episode, <laughs> then we started in your show talking about the creative potential of constraint. And I just find it so interesting to hear people talk about what one choice over another choice has meant in their lives or the ways that things they did not choose have come to shape the way that they make meaning of their lives. And just so that I'm not the last person to speak here, one more time, I want to pass the ball back to you and just let you carry it to wherever you want to carry it. You're looking at me, but you gestured at Kevin. Well, Kevin's Kevin is always someone that I find difficult to coax out onto the dance floor. But yeah, why don't you why don't you hit us, Kevin? You you actually have been very quiet. It's more frivolous than what you guys were just talking about. But one thing that I'm known for by the people who know me that has not come up in my conversations with you, but Michael knows this, is that I follow local bands. Well, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't mention it. We went to a show last night. So so I just just specialize in, started in college, a friend of mine at the dorms was a drummer. He asked everyone to come to his shows. And then I liked the band that opened for them. And I liked the band that opened for them and so on. Like that old branch of the tree commercial. And so obviously, as you can probably guess, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of times where there's a really talented band who's making good music that I like, and it's just the constraints of reality and living, earning money just caused the band members to quit. They didn't fight, they didn't have creative disagreements, but just just bothers me so much, these paths not tread like you were talking about, just because the reality is that you have to make money and, and give something up. So this is a reason why you know, I, I'm always coming off as very anti-capitalist shouldn't be so binary, but there ought to be a little more social support so that people can do things that are not monetarily remunerative. And I think our lives would be richer because of that, even if economically on the numbers, we weren't as productive. I think if a lot of those bands were together, our lives would be richer. <laughs> I wish there was some media in there where you didn't have to choose between making art and making money. <laughs> this is basically my conclusion. It applies to podcasters as well as bands. <laughs> Well, it's too late in the day to embark on a discussion of rival economic systems. Next time. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm somebody accused me recently of having returned to mainstream mentality because I'm not interested in peak oil anymore and I didn't want to follow them into their obsession over COVID. And I am a change that I've made, pretty solid change in the last 10 years. I mean, grown up and spent most of my life being a pretty harsh critic of the United States. But I've lived in other countries. And I, life in other countries has led me to appreciate the United States as an empire, as a global empire that provides stability, that millions of people live better lives as a result of the post-World War II arrangement where the U.S. was the last man standing. And instead of behaving like a typical empire, the United States said, you know what? The most important thing to us is to prevent the spread of international communism and to contain the Soviet Union. And we are going to, previous empires are basically pumps that draw wealth from the periphery to the center. The U.S. is not that at all. Australia, Germany, France, I mean, these are inarguably imperial client states. But the people who live there have health care. The people who live there have paid vacation and maternity leave. I mean, what other empire in the past has allowed the people in the peripheral territories to live more affluent lives than the people in the imperial center. And so I come to 
I mean, yeah, you could call that a reversion to mainstream mentality where you think, oh, anybody who's just unquestioningly patriotic and supportive of the United States is dumb. They haven't thought through. They haven't read. They haven't done their homework. Well, I've done the homework. I can recite the catechism of why the United States is evil, but I can also abstract from that and say that, yeah, but in a world like in the first half of the 20th century, Europe exploded in a, a paroxysm of self-destruction twice. Why haven't they done that again? I would say it's because of NATO. And what is NATO without the United States? Globalization. Yeah, it's ugly. It has made, it has created a pauper class out of what used to be a prosperous blue class middle class or blue collar middle class in the United States. So anyway, I mean, I don't want to go too far down that road other than to say that the most effective propaganda is going to be 90% truth. The more glaring lies you can take out of your propaganda and keep it truthful, the more effective it will be as propaganda. And so if you revert to a mainstream mentality where you believe everything on the BBC or you believe everything on MSNBC, or is it CNBC? And it fluctuates and I don't pay close attention. CNN, we'll say. Yeah, it's propaganda. Yeah, it favors the mainstream. It favors the status quo. But again, the most effective, the most effective propaganda is going to be mostly true. So if you revert to a mainstream mentality, you're probably going to have a more accurate view of the world than if you are reflexively anti-authoritarian. Where if that's the mainstream story, if that's the mainstream position, then the reverse must be true. Because we are ruled by shape-shifting reptilian overlords who lie about everything. So here I am, I guess, being the crotchety late middle-aged guy saying there are worse things to, than to get a job and to work and make money and support your family and not question too dramatically what you hear on the news. There are worse fates, for sure. Yeah, and one of them was it speak to this thing. We've talked about this a lot in the Discord server, actually, is how this thing of, oh, I could be anyone. I can do anything. Maybe. The story that so <laughs> we were all told is in, in, in future generations are not going to Yeah, 20 years, yeah. people... So, channeling Chuck Polinuk now. Right. Yeah. 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 The Fight Club message was really so poignant at the time that it arrived for the people who were fans of that story because... We were like, oh, wait, we were told, so many of us were told we were gifted kids. Turned out we just had ADHD. We're like, there's this, like our boomer parents were riding this wave of self-liberation that they didn't realize yet had been weaponized against them for political ends. And they wanted to tell this story to their kids about, oh, you can do anything. And what has led to is this just plague of people being like, I don't know how to choose. I don't know how to limit myself. I don't know how to, we talk about adulting has become a verb and it's a, it is as much of a performance of identity as anything anyone's doing on social media. And it's just incredibly messed up. And it's funny because in a way, I think our kids who are going to inherit a world that is so much more turbulent than the world that we believed we were growing up in, at least in the global North in the seventies and eighties was like, our kids are going to have this whole other thing, which is suddenly all of those hyper inflated downtown real estate prices are going <laughs> to plummet and the world's going to be full of refugee camps and random stochastic violence mitigated by Titan AI system that are like holding it down, keeping the fire from 
just erupting everywhere. And then also starting fires randomly that we can't predict. But there's a weird way in which I think they're going to have a much more healthy and balanced understanding of where humans sit in the food web and what the choices that we really have as agents in the world are. And yeah, I don't know. God damn it. I did it again. (laughs) Listen, if you've listened to this show and have critiqued me for gabbing on too much, I just want to let you know that there was alcohol involved. There was booze involved. (laughs) And also I'm sorry. And if you really want more of KMO, he's got this epic archive to dig through. And I'm not on it, except for the one episode. So <laughs> treat yourself. Yeah. Any parting thoughts? KMO.show is the new show. It's got an internal rhyme. Very simple. Show is the domain name like .com or .io or .net. Got to get that self-promotion there at the end. And Kevin was 116. He was the guest host on Future Fossils 116. Go back and listen to that. Don't have anything to say besides it's been an honor. This was everything that I hoped it would be in an interview between the two of you. So any effort that I spent causing this to happen paid off a thousand percent dividends. <laughs> Fucking A. Yeah. I hold you gentlemen both in the highest respect. About a month after that conversation between Michael, KMO, and myself, KMO posted an opinion video which asked the question, will AI become politicized in much the same way that the science of coronavirus became politicized? I wanted to point out, KMO's video led me to crystallize one of my main objections about AI. It's something that worries me about AI performing even as it's advertised. AI is advertised, I mean literally I've seen the advertisements, as allowing you to create more content, text, visual, even audio, by an order of magnitude at a faster pace. I've literally seen, post 10 times as many blog posts and attract people to your site. People will use it to create 10 times as many videos without the need for costumes, actors, or even a camera. As we already know, we will be flooded with fake scientific study papers that will be virtually indistinguishable from the real thing at first glance. Every advance in technology is billed as, quote, labor-saving, unquote. But what we have seen from history so far, basically without exception, is that every advance squeezes more labor out of us, leaving us with less free time and leisure, like the Red Queen's race. When tech increases our productivity, more productivity is expected from us and taken for granted. When tech increases the personal power and autonomy of individuals, all 8 billion of us, our lives become more and more complicated. Well, who is going to have time to read slash intake that flood of new content? Won't it be inevitable that we consumers will need to have personal AIs that digest this AI content for us? Weed out the fakes, snip it out the tidbits that the AIs think are the most relevant and interesting for each consumer, based on the AI models of our individual tastes? So if AIs generate the vast bulk of content, and AIs are the ones who need to intake, slash, read, listen, watch all this new content, then what's the point of having humans around anymore? Since it seems like the bulk of the economy, at least here in the US, revolves around content, entertainment, and IP, 
As AI unleashes a flood of content into the economy, it seems to me like the surviving humans will be more and more marginalized and dehumanized. And a day after I wrote that, Charles Eisenstein, who has appeared on the Future Fossils podcast, put out an essay which hit on a lot of the same themes. Since Charles Eisenstein's work is free to the public if you sign up on his website at Substack, I'm just going to read his essay. You can find it there along with his other writings. Charles Eisenstein's essay is called An Edifying Thought on AI, published April 7th. One of the biggest headaches for teachers is reading and grading homework. After a stressful day at school, they return home to a pile, or these days a digital dropbox, full of papers. How tempting it must be to let an AI read, summarize, and possibly even grade these papers. That's what technology is for, after all, to eliminate tedious labor. On the student end, it is no secret that a lot of students are using ChatGPT to write their papers for them. Ask ChatGPT to, quote, make the case that Athens was doomed to lose the Peloponnesian War, unquote, and voila, there's your paper. No longer must students endure the tedium of writing papers on subjects they really don't care about. This is a wonderful development. AI is both writing and reading the students' papers, with no human involvement whatsoever. In time, we might hope that education will be fully automated. Humans can sit on the sidelines and let the machines do all that dull teaching and learning. I had a similar idea when I read that Google is unveiling tools to help users write and edit emails with the appropriate tone and content, as well as to write documents in Google Docs. This is great! And because no one will be able to cope with the vast expansion of written content that will inundate us thanks to these tools, we will soon start using AI to read our emails and documents as well. Text will be flying back and forth, but no human will read it. The AIs will do it for us. The future is bright. AI will help us produce orders of magnitude more words, pictures, and video, and then also help us consume it. It will write entire annual reports, white papers, news articles, and academic papers that no one will ever read. You might ask, if no one ever reads them, why should we produce all this verbiage in the first place? I'm disappointed that you asked. The new content will be higher quality than the old, especially as the technology progresses. We will have more and better information, and thankfully we will have AI to read it. I hope that was edifying. Sometime in the next week or so, I'm going to post a trialog on AI that I engaged in with a couple of other philosophers. I promise that its intellectual cogency will equal, if not surpass, that of the above observations. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, ad-free, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon.